Welcome to the Science Cafe. Um, tonight's Science Cafe is called Something Fishy in Lake Michigan. And it's about the Lake Michigan fishery and how it has changed and what its future might look like. Um, it's sponsored by a generous gift from Kathleen and Spencer Maidlow, who are sitting right here. Please thank them. And if you notice a conspicuous lack of our ever-present donation box by the food, uh, I hope you'll thank them for that, too. Um, also, as always, thanks to Connors for the space and the wonderful hospitality. Without further ado, let me introduce our three speakers. Um, Bo Bunnell um, has, and he is to my left, you're right, um, has been a research a uh, fishery biologist at the uh, USGS Great Lakes Science Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan for 15 years. Um, for some of that time, he was also my neighbor. Um, uh, he is also an adjunct associate professor at the University of Michigan School for Environment and Sustainability, where he teaches fisheries science and management every other year. And originally from Kentucky, and even after earning his PhD from Ohio State, he has he has fallen in love with Ann Arbor and the Great Lakes region, uh, so please welcome Bo. All right. Right, yeah, there you go. Yuchun Kao is a postdoctoral research associate in fishery science and sustainability at MSU. Um, he obtained his PhD from uh, from UM School of Natural Resources in the, in the Environment, which is now SEAS, right? Uh, and has always been cheering for the Wolverines, he wants you to know. Uh, his current research focuses on native species restoration and predicting the effects of non-native carp across the Great Lakes. Um, and Ed Rutherford um, is a research fishery biologist at NOAA's Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory in Ann Arbor. Who knew we had so many labs in Ann Arbor um, that were all about the Great Lakes? It's, it's, it's awesome, I think it's fantastic. Um, and an, an, an adjunct research scientist at the University of Michigan's School of Environment and Sustainability. He obtained his PhD in marine environmental and estuarian science from the University of Maryland. I'm not even sure I can say that correctly, but I, uh, I think I did okay. Um, Ed's research interests include population dynamics, early life history and habitat of Great Lakes and marine fishes, and food webs. And his current research projects include modeling the effects of multiple stressors, like invasive species, climate change, land use change, on the Great Lakes food webs and fishes, and helping to develop maps, databases, and decision support tools for management and conservation of Great Lakes fishes and their habitat. So please welcome our speakers. Okay, thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, and so what I wanna do is really mostly just set up our next two speakers. I'm gonna give sort of go back in time and talk about how the fish community has changed in the Great Lakes, but just using Lake Michigan as an example. Um, 
And I know you can't probably see the slides, especially those of you in the back, so I'll try to more sort of tell a story. If you can see the slides, great. If you can't, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to walk you through that. But the, I think the first thing really at that table, we're showing like there's four different, what I'm calling eras, um, going back maybe the last 100 or 150 years. And what you might be able to see is not the words, but how we get more and more red as we get more to the bottom of the page. And those reds are invasive species that have become more and more a part of our food web and more and more a part of our fisheries community. So at the top, that's like the 19, like pre-1930s, that was when we had most, the most intact sort of fisheries community in Lake Michigan. And, you know, so we had lake trout, native lake trout at the top, and then we have native whitefishes, like native ciscos that supported that lake trout. And, that, and, you know, we're generalizing, we're leaving off a lot of the diversity in the lakes, but just to try to tell the story, we're going to mostly focus on sort of that offshore, deep water uh, predator, top predator of lake trout, along with the native fishes that were there. Secondly, we had sort of the era, and I got to squint to see, 1930 to 1966, I'm calling this like the lamprey and alewife era. So this is when the first really nasty changes happened to Lake Michigan. Um, and we get those invasive species with lamprey, alewife, smelt. And then we get into the what I'll call the salmon era. So 1966 up to 1994. This is when managers began using tools to manipulate that fish community, mostly through stocking. And this is what Yuchun is going to talk a lot about in his sort of 10 minutes. Um, and then lastly, 1994 to present, I'm calling it the mussel era. So this is the you know, quagga mussel, well, zebra mussels that you've probably heard of, but now it's all quagga mussels. Quagga mussels have outcompeted zebra mussels, and the lake is just now a carpet of mussels, and they've, cha they've changed the way that energy moves through the lake, and that affects what fish do well. Um, so our next slide, then, I think is just a picture of our native sort of pre- 1930s community. So at the top, we've got our beautiful lake trout. Um, and below that, we have these whitefishes, these native whitefishes. Scientists are still arguing about which species, which are species and which are subspecies. They're all the same genus called Corrigonus. Um, another species that you've probably heard of and have likely eaten is called the lake whitefish. So the lake whitefish is the benthic form. These are the more of the pelagic forms that were served, that were the prey for the native lake trout. And there also were commercial fisheries based on these different whitefishes. Um, and then down at the bottom, we have our native slimy and deep water sculpin species that um, fed essentially the very juvenile lake trout when they were on the bottom of the lake. So again, a very simplified intact community before the 1930s. But by the end of the 1930s, we had stressors. We had, um, we had especially a lot of habitat degradation. We started building dams. We started taking down the timber along the, what we call the riparian zone along the tributaries and floating that timber down the stream. We had sawmills, a lot of sedimentation in, in, in the habitat there. So if you were a fish that used the river for part of your life history, it was tough on you. We lost some species there. The other thing we got really good at by the 1930s was fishing. So we had um, advances in the way that we could power boats. We had steam engines and then um, outboard engines and then diesel engines. And then uh, we got uh, steel hole bolts and we could go farther and we could fish harder. And overfishing became an issue 
and they didn't really realize that. You look at this inland massive sea and you think, how could I possibly exhaust all the fish? Well, they could, they didn't realize they could, but, but that happened not just in the oceans, but in the Great Lakes. Our next era then is the lamprey and alewife era. And the, the, this was a lethal one-two punch. The sea lampreys that came in, we actually have a sea lamprey expert in the room, uh, Corey Brandt here has a new book that he might plug if you talk to him later. But a really great expert in sea lamprey, but they are nasty parasites, prey upon the largest fish they encounter, and we lost mostly lake trout, we lost the largest of these native deepwater ciscos, and uh, we really only had two left, like the Corrigonus hoyi down at the bottom left, that's also called bloater or chub, if you've heard of chub before, and then the cisco or the lake herring, I've put, got sort of a, a light gray um, X. It was mostly taken away, but there still are some remnants of it remaining. And the next slide, I think, oh, just, and here's what replaced them. So um, in terms of, we have alewife that's going to come in later, and then rainbow smelt, two non-native species that were able to come in, and through, once we essentially made a pass around Niagara Falls, these species were able to come in, and there was nothing there uh, because we had overfished those native uh, cisco, and there was no predation on them, so they were able just to exploit really an open habitat. Okay, our next slide then. And, and by, um, by the end of 1966, these nasty lamprey had essentially allowed for this situation without lake trout that alewife really ate themselves out of the house. And um, the cover of Life magazine in 1966-67, alewife were on it, just littering the beaches of Chicago. Too many alewife, and that puts us into the next era, which is the next slide. And this is the, uh, this is the salmon era. And the salmon era was really conceived by two men at Michigan DNR, Wayne Toady and Howard Tanner. And they saw all of these alewife out there almost as like a beautiful verdant pasture that could be harvested, right? And harvested by, the, by these fish that they brought from, not only from the West Coast, but also things like brown trout eventually from, from Germany. And later the federal government came in and said, oh, hey, we want to bring lake trout back too. But we had this really diverse top predator community now replacing what used to be just the lake trout. And of course, we also have the burbot, which I'm not really talking about as much, but... Um, a diverse fishery that really created a new economic engine for the Great Lakes. So the Great Lakes used to be a place that people did not recreate, you know, fouled with um, alewife, rotting alewife. People didn't really fish. Now you had people, the next slide, really um, coming out and taking advantage. There's Howard Tanner in 19, April of 1966 planting the first coho salmon in, well, they had been planted before, but this is the first time it really worked. So planting coho salmon, um, I think it was the Platte River, the Platte River, and then 67, a year later, if you can see the picture, people were amazed what came back. These massive fish, things that they had never seen, beautiful silvery fish that brought a whole new economic engine to the Great Lakes, to Lake Michigan. Next slide. So now we're sort of set up with what do we have now in this new era? It's really the same players. We have still the entire suite of community at the top, a really diverse predator community. Um, and, and now what Yuchun is going to talk about is sort of managers and struggling about to what extent, or in just a minute he's going to talk about, to what extent which of these fish should we favor? Should we stock the native lake trout or should we stock something like the Chinook salmon? 
Um, but what's new is we now have all the mussels that I put along the bottom of that slide. So these are these mussels that have come in and carpeted the bottom of the lake. It's unbelievable if you see it. It used to be a beautiful sand bottom mostly. Now it's just mussels, and they're filtering out all the plankton, the phytoplankton that feeds the zooplankton, that feeds things like alewife and our native ciscos. Um, the other new species is round goby. So round goby came in the same way through the Ponto Caspian, like the Caspian Sea region, uh, through our freighters, or through freighters that are coming to do trade. And that round goby now is a really important prey fish on the bottom, like the sculpins, that are feeding things, some of our species, like lake trout, they're taking advantage of these round gobies, and round gobies are eating the mussels. So some people would argue, if we're going to have mussels, we might as well have gobies too, because they're accessing, they're bringing that energy back into the food web. Next slide. And so here's that, here's that change in mussels. So the first two on the left, so that's Lake Michigan. On the left, you can see that when we had zebra mussels, in 1994-95, which is the far left, and then 2000, they were really just limited to the sort of the bathtub of the lake because they can't, they, they didn't do well in really cold waters, and they also need hard substrate in order to, to attach. Then we got quagga mussels, which is the same genus, uh, different species, and quagga mussels don't have those limitations. They can go down to the coldest, deepest depths of the lake. They don't, they can attach on sand, and they are really efficient they are, in terms of getting, uh, surviving at really low densities of phytoplankton. So the next slide, once those mussels came in, essentially um, what we lost are the native bugs that fish like to eat, like dipariah. So many of our native fish cannot eat mussels, and the thing they used to be able to eat, like dipariah, is gone, we think, because of some interaction with mussels, but we can't really prove it. Next slide. And so thinking about, again, changes in the food web, um, looking at the bottom slide, this is our phosphorus. So the amount of phosphorus that's going into the water that ultimately supports the plankton, that supports plankton that supports the fish, fish that support the big predator fish. And we have had long-term declines in phosphorus because we want to, because we put policies in place like the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement that reduces the amount of phosphorus that keeps our water clean and prevents like cyanobacteria blooms and keeps the water drinkable and not poisonous. But that's not the case everywhere. Like Lake Erie, they are facing the opposite problem. Too much phosphorus in the water. So Lake Michigan, too little phosphorus, some would argue. Lake, uh, like a fisheries perspective, Lake Erie, too much phosphorus. So next slide. Um, and, and again, it's that phosphorus at the bottom, a very simplified food web, that phosphorus that feed, and so the question is, what does it take to make 10 pounds of fish? So it takes, I gotta go closer, to make 10 pounds of salmon, 75 pounds of alewife, 2,000 pounds of zooplankton, and 7,500 pounds of, of phytoplankton or algae. And I'm not gonna get into the energetics of that, and why, like through metabolism, why, it takes that much to support 10 pounds of salmon, but the phosphorus at the, at the base of that, as we reduce phosphorus, that just means that we can support less fish at the top. So next slide. So really, when you're thinking about the alewife as an example for the prey fish, or you can think of a native prey fish like a cisco, they're really getting squeezed in the middle of the, of the lake. So we have all the, the stocking pressure of the top predators at the top, and then we have at the bottom of the food web, we have declining phosphorus. So not as much to eat if you're like an alewife or a, a prey fish and a lot of predation coming down 
um, reducing your probability of survival. So it's a tough place to be in Lake Michigan if you're a prey fish. Um, and so Utah Next is going to talk about how managers are using that information about the changing food web to adjust stocking rates. Hi, I'm Yuchun Gao. Thanks everyone for coming here. Uh, you may think uh, I'm going to talk about Asian carp, but uh, this gentleman is actually the Asian carp expert. Uh, I'm going to, next slide, uh, I'm going to tell you some story about uh, Michigan. So, in addition, so when it comes to fishery management, the first thing come to your mind is actually regulation. So, like bagging limit or harvest quota. Other than that, in this place, this is stocking. And the stocking has a very long history in this place. So when you think about stocking, you may think about uh, the stocking by Howard Tanner starting in 1966. But uh, in fact, uh, more than 100 years ago, it uh, had been a common interest. People had been thinking what uh, can make our fisheries at that time better because they already sell the declining fishery resources. So that time they have stocked uh, Chinook salmon, coho salmon, whitefish, German carp, another type of carp. That was a success, and uh, among other species. And then, however, that's, uh, you can see, uh, if you can see, that's from, 19, that's, uh, from 1873 to 1933. And after that, there was a gap because all of those efforts failed badly. <laughs> yeah, otherwise you would have seen some salmon. So in the 1916, so people started to stocking because the situation was really bad. So I say that's an era, stocking as a new hope. And then finally, after 1994, that's a stocking was integrated as part of conservation, and the goal was to restore the ecosystem and support fisheries. So I'll talk more about those in the following slides. Next. So this is what uh, they had done in, in, well, more than 100 years ago. The red dots around the Lake Michigan were the places where they stocked different species of salmon. So there were mm, eight, uh, so anyway, a lot of Chinook salmon and a lot Atlantic salmon stocked in these places. And uh, if you see that, uh, that uh, hatchery, that was the first US fish hatchery owned by Federal, and that was in North File. So if you know NoFi, like uh, 20 several miles away. And uh, then there is a fish hatchery park. Yeah. And that, 100 years ago, that site was for this. So next slide. And then situation become really bad in, in the era, as we'll talk about. Both showed a photo where you have a big a uh, big lake trout attached by two small lamprey, but uh, in this era, you really see these small lake trout attached by big sea lamprey. And you even see a uh, yellow perch attached by a uh, sea lamprey. So that uh, situation is really bad. And then we saw this 
Elwives. And so DNR managers came with the mission, we want to make something happen. Can you click that? Like this, so brighter color. We haven't, uh, so we saw this young man fishing and a more woman fisher. I made it up. <laughs> yeah, more woman fisher than men and uh, using this luxury gear. That's a hope to create something. So this is a new fishery. So next slide. So what they do was to stock salmon and that was really successful in the 80s. So in the 90s, here comes the so-called ecosystem-based management. So they want to use stock, stocking as part of conservation and then have more, well, achieve multiple goals at one time. So the goal was to, we have a healthy ecosystem to support ecosystem service, and we hope these fish stocks are self-sustaining, but uh, if not, uh, we also want, we use stock to help achieve that goal. And uh, salmon, so there are different uh, objectives for different species. For salmon and lake trout, the objective is to have these, uh, don't worry about uh, the total harvest number, but uh, you can see the species, uh, if you can see the species <laughs> composition on your right hand side. So majority of the harvest, about 60% would be Chinook salmon and then 20% lake trout. And then the others are the other species. So that uh, was possible until Next slide. Until around 2010, because as Paul said, you can see the decline in productivity. And you keep stocking at that rate, so you really cannot sustain that much of fish. Now you really need to make a decision. Next slide. So whether you want to have more Chinook salmon or lake trout, so these two species are different. So usually Chinook salmon are more near shore. They also come into the river. And if you hook it one up, it's a very good fight for 30 to 40 minutes. And a lot of Chinook salmon have been natural, naturalized, so, which means they produce, they reproduce naturally in the river. And the lake trout are more offshore, but they are easier to catch. So, well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. You give me the photo of your wife. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and then, <laughs> I guess that uh, for some people, they are really successful in their career. They don't have that much time to fight a Chinook. They can choose to catch Lake Trout. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, but uh, to date, Lake Trout still don't have very successful natural reproduction. So next slide. So key findings from one of our research papers is uh, at this stage, lake trout could be better adapted to the new ecosystem because they are able to feed in around the Gobi. And if you really want to change the stocking rate of uh, Chinook salmon, that may make a little difference because we don't have enough productivity to support Elwife to support lake trout. And then there are 
there is a growing importance of natural recruitment. So if you change the stocking rate, they will be supplemented by the natural recruitment. So next slide. So I show the emanation. This, the ecosystem was like uh, this, but with all the inflations, you have this Gobi pathway. Can you click? So one click. Yeah, you have these go. Yeah, you have these Gobi pathway. So um, Lake Trout can better use these energy. So this is the end of the stocking story. And I was asked to give an introduction for Asian carp. <laughs> Next slide. So now I thought the title was Asian carp. But <laughs> yeah, so Asian carp is a very American term. If you go to Asia and tell everyone, hey, Asian carp. And <laughs> I will say, what is Asian carp? And, <laughs> and I don't know. And we call it four major Chinese carp or four major domestic carp because they are important in aquaculture history. So usually in Chinese people, they have a pond in front of their house and you dump your waste there and you stock uh, carp in inside the four different species because they are using different part of these water column. Silver and the big head carps use the top part of the water column. Grass carp and the black carps using their water, uh, using the bottom part of the water column. And then we eat them. We love heads. You can see someone is eating a salmon head because they, he cannot find a carp head here. <laughs> uh, yeah, have and then they were stuck to control water quality. So next slide. So that's our management uh, solution. So if you have algal balloon, you stock bigger head carp. If you have low water level, you have grass carp to control the vegetation. And you have this muscle problem, you stock black carp to eat them. So that's uh, the end of my talk, and I will talk about Asian carp. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's a great introduction. And so um, there are these four uh, Chinese carps, the four major Chinese carps um, that are here in, in this country. They were all brought in in the 60s and 70s, actually, to clear water quality problems in fish, pond, fish ponds. And they got out of those ponds during a big flooding event surprise, and the big head and silver carp escaped into the Mississippi River drainage in the 1970s. Uh, the black carp also did. Um, the grass carp was brought in because it eats grass or aquatic weeds uh, to clear canals of aquatic weeds, and they were actually brought up intentionally into the Great Lakes region, and then they got into the Great Lakes drainage. They are the only uh, one of these four carps that are now within the Great Lakes full-time and uh, they were treated, they were inter uh, intentionally introduced and treated so that they wouldn't reproduce with radiation. Well, guess what happened? They're now reproducing and they're in Lake Erie, Western Lake Erie, and we have no idea how many there are. Uh, they're reproducing in the Sandusky River. Um, but anyway, we're not going to talk about the grass carp. <laughs> we're not going to talk about the black carp, which eats stuff on the bottom. We can later if you'd like. But the two carps that I would like to talk to you about are the big head carp and the silver carp. 
And can you go to the next slide, please? Thank you. So those two fish on the right, the big head carp, it, they, uh, they are, it's, the, it's a bigger, they are both have big heads, but the big head carp gets up to about 100 pounds. And they have very high consumption rates. They have very high fecundities. They produce a lot of eggs. And um, the slide on the left shows the population growth rate of the big head carp in the Mississippi and, and uh, Illinois rivers. Now, these fish have high potential. Everywhere they've been introduced, they, their populations explode if there's enough food. So it's not, that's not unusual for them to do this in our waters. If, uh, and there's plenty of nutrients in the Mississippi River and the Illinois River that are coming in. Next slide, please. Um, so this is, uh, that shows you how big these things can get. So that's a big head carp being hoisted up by Dr. Quentin Phillips, who is a colleague of ours at um, now at Southern Missouri State University. And then he's holding two silver carp on the right. They get up to 40 pounds. And those are the fish that if you've seen these uh, scarping videos online, you see these fish flying out of the water. Well, imagine a 40-pound projectile coming right at you, and your boat's going down the river. It's ridiculous. You know, people have been injured. Um, <laughs> there are actually uh, scarping videos of people trying to spear them and throw them in a basketball net while on water skis going down the river. So anyway, um, so that's a picture. That's everybody's probably seen that picture, but they get so abundant that. If you calculated the total weight of fish in a river system, they would they could get up to about 90% of the weight of fish in a river system. So they have huge growth rates, huge reproductive rates, um, and they're highly invasive. So that's why we're all worried about what would they do in the Great Lakes, right? So <laughs> next slide, please. So there's a map, if you, uh, so if you do nothing else and you want to know more about Asian carp, there's a website you can go to. It's called asiancarp.us. Um, it has great information about the history of the invasion, what's being done to control it, what studies are being done. So where are your tax dollars going to keep them out of the Great Lakes? It's wonderful. And this map is a, is a description of their distribution uh, relatively recently. And so if you, you're at the back of the room, you can't see it, but what's being shown is um, the upper Mississippi River, where they are, they are presently, but they're in lower abundance. The red indicates high abundances of big head and silver carp. So they're right at the doorstep. They're right in the Illinois River. They're being stopped from going further by an electric barrier, uh, a bubble barrier, and a noise barrier at this place called the Brandon Road Lock and Dam. And they're actually going to proposing to build another barrier. Um, not a complete separation of the water connection to the Great Lakes, because there's all sorts of politics involved with that. Um, but anyway, that's where they are right now. The Wabash River drains into Lake Erie, 
And recently, there was a barrier put at the Eagle Marsh, which can separate them from getting into Lake Erie. So they're there, so they are a real threat to the fisheries and the ecosystems of the Great Lakes. Next slide, please. So if you talk to 50 scientists, it's like, you know, I won't use vulgarity here, but everybody has an opinion, right? So people have worked in the Great Lakes a long time, especially those who've seen Lake Michigan become uh, low in productivity due to the mussels. Say the carp eat the same thing as the mussels. They eat the, low, the base of the, of the food web, the phytoplankton or the plant life. And there's none, there's very little out there right now, so how can they do well? Um, and so uh, my colleague, Dr. Gary Fonensteel, is chewing the ears of our former NOAA administrator, telling her, Lake Michigan has changed, don't worry about the Asian carp. Um, but there are areas of Lake Michigan that are productive, they're still productive, and that's, those are the areas that also support the early life of many of our fishes, and so that's what we're worried about. Next slide, please. So go through a little bit about the biology of these carps. Um, they eat phytoplankton, which is the, the microscopic plant life. That's the base of the food web. They also eat bacteria, things that are even smaller. They also eat um, the fecal matter of the mussels. It's called detritus in the water column or in the bottom of the lake. And they also eat the water fleas that feed on the, the plant life, the phytoplankton. Uh, the, the water fleas are the zooplankton. And both species eat the same thing, only in different proportions. So they, they can coexist. Um, that coincidentally is also the prey for the alewives and the rainbow smelt, the, 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 uh, what we call the prey fish that feed the salmon. So the fear is that they'll outcompete the resident prey fish that are eating the same things for plankton, and then that will lower the, the, um, the food available for salmon and trout, which we like. Um, these, because these fish get so big so fast, they quickly outgrow the gape or the mouth size of a salmon or a lake trout. So they really only have about six months when they're first born, um, to, for a, a big predator get, to get their teeth into these things, and then they grow out of the, the window of predation by a salmon or a trout or a bass or something. Um, so next slide. So because these two species are not established in the Great Lakes, we really don't know what the heck's gonna happen and we're supposed to give people answers, so what do you do when you don't know something? You turn to people who know better than you about what's going on in the lake, like Bo and Yuchun. And um, so we actually asked experts in fishery science and ecology of the Great Lakes, what are these carp gonna eat when they get in? And, 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 and importantly, what species of fish would be able to eat those carp? And we, we did several rounds of interviews of these experts, and we took those data, 
We put it together. We also have the advantage of years of sampling the Great Lakes, and your tax dollars support monitoring of the Great Lakes. Monitoring is not a sexy word, but it's so important because it gives you the background for, from which you can develop predictive models to understand what the carp will do, what climate change will do. And so this is a cartoon of a food web, in this case for Lake Michigan, of a food web. And the bottom row of that food web is the phytoplankton, the, the microscopic plant life. And that's what both of these carps can eat. Then the next row on the right-hand side are, you start to see these tiny bugs, which are water fleas or zooplankton. Both species also can eat those. And then they can eat some of the predator plankton species that feed on the um, smaller plankton. So they're really feeding, these carps are really feeding at the base of the food web. That's the most abundant source of food for anything out there. And that's, the, that's why we're worried about them. They'll, they'll sort of cut the rug from the rest of the food web. Next slide, please. So we put a model together of the food web. We did some work to make sure the model can at least predict the time series of interactions of, of walleye, perch, salmon, and prey fish and plankton over the years of time that we've monitored it to make sure at least we can predict what's happened in the past. And then we introduce into this model the big head and silver carp and see what happens. And we wait, we run it for 100 years and we also, based on all this expert opinion about who's going to eat whom and by how much, and everybody has a different opinion. If you asked us three, we'd have a different opinion about all that. Um, and we incorporated that to get some, um, knowing that we're uncertain in this prediction, we get, we get an average prediction, and then there's some variance around that prediction. So this slide shows you the response of different types of fishes and bugs to an invasion of big head and silver carp into Lake Erie. Lake Erie is the most productive of the Great Lakes, and so that's the one we were charged with predicting first. And so on the y-axis, it's a little bit complicated, but you see the numbers go from zero to 40, and so if a species group goes up above zero, that means when Asian, when the big head and silver carp in the, are in Lake Erie, they're gonna respond positively to that. And so the first thing you can notice is that doesn't happen too often, at least based on the model. And then if the species group goes below zero, that means that species responded negatively to the to big head and silver carp being in the ecosystem. Um, and then there, the error bars on those um, histograms are just indicate, that's a measure of the uncertainty that we have in our predictions. So we're pretty uncertain, but we get a general trend of what's gonna happen. And so the bo bottom line is um, a few species will respond positively to the presence of the big head and silver carp 
and that would be a smallmouth bass, which is a known predator of smaller fish, and they're in the right place at the right time to eat the small carp. And yellow perch actually go up a little bit, and the reason we think they're going up a little bit is because the walleye who eats them goes down even more, so they're released from predation by walleyes, um, and even though they're hurting a little bit from competition with the carp for plankton, their abundance will go up. And then the rest of the, their two prey fishes, the gizzard shad and the emerald shiner, which compete with the big head and silver carp, and their abundance goes down. And then the um, water fleas, which are consumed directly by these species, also goes down. So next slide. All right, so that's Lake Erie, the most productive lake. We expect that the carps will do okay there. Um, so then we said, all right, what's gonna happen in Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, um, and Lake uh, in Saginaw Bay, also a productive system. And so on this slide, on the left-hand side, is a prediction from this ecosystem model of the biomass of the big head and silver carp if they get into the lake. And on the right-hand side, the green line indicates the amount of plant life in that system. So there are a couple of things to sh say. One is in Lake Erie and Saginaw Bay. Those are the more productive systems. Um, the higher amount of plant life, that's food for the carp. And the blue line indicates the predictive uh, carp uh, weight that would be in, in that system after an amount of time. And uh, so bottom line is the more productive the system, the more carp you're gonna have. It's more food for the carp. And that's not rocket science. You probably would have told me that anyway, but you know, I have to get paid to do this, so it takes time, right? <laughs> okay, so that's the bottom line. So next slide. So then we look at different, uh, different species which occur in these different systems. And for some of the species like walleye, in, and there's this color coded, so the yellow is in the productive Saginaw Bay system, the blue is in uh, relatively unproductive Lake Huron, and red is Lake Michigan. So for the most part in the main basin of Lake Huron and in the main basin of Lake Michigan, there's not much of a response by each, by most of these species. And that's because there's not much food there. Um, the, in, in Saginaw Bay, which is very productive, you see a bigger response. Um, positive for the yellow perch, because it's released from predation from walleye. And other predators, which is a group which includes bass and pike, they also do well. So our conclusion is looking across lakes that in Lake Erie, which is the most productive system, where, where, where there's more food for carp, they're gonna do better and they're gonna have more of an impact. Next, next slide. So um, probably too much information, uh, 
but there's a lot. We're going to, I guess, break up and walk around. We have an Asian carp modeling expert over there, and one of the handouts on your table is all about him and his work as a master's degree student at University of Michigan, and he can explain it a lot better than I can. Um, but we'll be happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you. So as Ed just said, um, we'll break now for discussion. I think there are a few more hors d'oeuvres over there. Uh, we'll have the wait staff come on in and refill your glasses. There's some questions, too, on your tables. Um, and I, I was looking, somebody told me last time to put the questions on both sides. So I, print, I did printed them on, print them on both sides of these. Um, I, thought, I think the questions are really interesting, so I hope you'll take a particular look and think about some of the situations that these uh, fisheries experts are proposing and what you would advocate. And uh, there is a lot of expertise in the room. So I'll let you go at it for a little while. We will come back together just about 7 o'clock for a group discussion. So thanks, thanks for sticking it out. We've got a, a, a lot of, there were a lot of interesting questions and topics that came up during the break. And I want to, I want to get some of them addressed. And I know I have some questions. Um, so this is the part where we do sort of one big conversation. Uh, one big group discussion. I've agreed to moderate, and I'll um, I'll be passing this red uh, microphone around, and I'll let speakers know uh, when you have the floor and when you do not. Um, so I'm going to pass this around, and please use the microphone to enable everybody to hear. And because um, Matt over there is recording us for later podcasts, so it's very important that you use the mic so that we can hear your voice on the podcast as well as in the room. Um, please look at me to be recognized if you would like to speak, even though I uh, don't know much about fish. <laughs> A little bit. Um, <laughs> limit your questions to uh, or comments to 30 seconds to a minute or so, so that lots of people can participate. Um, if you go on forever, I may interrupt you. So there it is. Um, likewise, I'm going to give preference to those who haven't spoken yet, so that we hear lots of different voices. And I noticed um, about two sessions ago that we had mostly men asking questions. So I want to make a special plea. Ladies, ask your questions. Speak up. If you don't want to ask them into the mic, just tell tell me, and I'll ask I'll ask the question. Um, I'm serious. I want to I want to get your questions out on the floor, uh, so that we can end the discussion as well. Um, uh, I'm not shy, so I'm happy to do that if you need me to. Um, oh, I always hope this part of the will feel more like a conversation than just a question and answer. And I know that. <clears throat> We have a lot of um, expertise in the room. Uh, so uh, not just these guys, but other people in the room uh, have a lot of expertise about fishes and fisheries. Um, so please feel free to address comments as well as questions to the whole group um, and ask other participants for their experiences. Um, we all like to be nice to each other, uh, so um, especially when there are um, Disagreements, please be nice to each other or else. 
And if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, you will definitely not get the voice of the museum's super cute baby sturgeon on your voicemail. What does the sturgeon sound like, you may be thinking? Come to the museum and find out. Um, meantime, turn off your phone. Um, questions about the group discussion? Does anybody want to start us off? I'd like all of you to address the politics of the CARP situation. I believe that I saw just last week that Trump did not authorize the money for the new, new level of uh, um, blocking the CARP. So one of you referred to, now there's the third level, but that's not going to happen at least immediately. The other thing is, I don't understand the politics of Illinois because they are a Great Lakes state, and yet they don't seem really dedicated to stopping the carp coming into Lake Michigan by the fact that they're, they're not, um, their route is leading right into the lake, and they don't seem to want to go with um, a route for the carp to swim in that keeps them separated from the lake. So I'll just comment on your second question or, com or comment about uh, Illinois. So actually, um, when I first started working about the, on the, uh, the four Chinese carps, it was in, during the Obama era, in, in about 2010 and 2011, and attended a, um, a workshop. The public was invited. Um, many of the politicians in Michigan, Debbie, um, Dabana, thank you, John Dingle was still there and alive, and uh, they all got up on stage, and they were all supportive of efforts to keep the carp out of the Great Lakes. And halfway through the meeting, when they had a question and answer session like this, about 100 people from the city of Chicago who came to this meeting got up and one by one read their statements about, we're not going to put a barrier in the Chicago River. They hijacked the meeting. It was actually really impressive. And the reason why they did this is because they are running uh, tour boats up and down the river. There's a huge uh, uh, barge traffic industry that runs freight from the Great Lakes down into the Mississippi River, down the river. It's, it's very valuable. And Obama, um, the Obama administration, uh, did not actively support a, a barrier, a physical barrier to get, that would keep them out permanently, out of that access point. And so we sort of worked our way um, towards uh, sort of lower level prevention, things like electric barriers and sound barriers and so on and so forth. And the most recent, so <laughs> at 9 o'clock last night, <laughs> Bo, 
<laughs> said, so we thought this question might come up, like how expensive would it be to keep the carps out of the Great Lakes permanently, out of that going up the Chicago River? And with my excellent memory, I completely uh, underestimated it as 26 million, uh, but it actually is 18.8 .8 billion is the estimate to permanently block the access point. Build a wall. Build a wall. Against those invasive species, and then um, the the level that you're talking about that the Trump administration does not want to support would be seven hundred and seventy-eight million dollars. So very expensive, um, but you balance that against the estimated value of the Great Lakes recreational fishery, which is uh, seven billion a year. That's give or take a couple of billion, but you know, so, so those are the types of, and that's kind of one of the discussion points that I thought would be interesting. How do you, how do you balance that? And, and you can't just ignore the city of Chicago. You know, they're also moving uh, their waste down the river. Um, that's why it's a good habitat for the, the big-headed and silver carps instead of into the Great Lakes. So if you go into Lake Michigan, it's, it's crystal clear now, um, but downstream it's not. And if you put a barrier in there, what are you gonna do with all the waste? So, so it's complicated. And what do you want me to do? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so. Tell them your famous saying. Make. There's no, uh, let me just uh, say something about uh, Trump's, our president's budget proposal. It uh, always changed a lot. So in last uh, three years, the proposal has been very different uh, from what uh, final, mm, the final number was approved. So my, my research funding was cut uh, by 90% every time at the proposal stage, but it was restored by Congress. So in past two years. So this year I have learned I would not read into that proposal because it is still too early to say. Yeah, so, well, yeah. Okay. Hi, if I understood the earlier slides in this uh, pre-1938, there was, there were a lot of fish in Lake Michigan, but I'm guessing that there was a lot, there was very little phosphorus. And I just wondered if you could say anything about that. I think we actually don't know how much phosphorus there was. I think your assumption is right. It probably was maybe even lower than what we have today, but we don't have any data on that. And so what we had is like a, a very different fish community that was evolved to thrive in a very low productive cold environment. And that's how these native species, these uh, ciscos that I talked about, lake trout, longer lived, slow growing, they, this, this was what they were made for over the last 10,000 years. And at some point as we, you know, our industrial revolution happened, we started pouring more and more phosphorus into the lakes and it supported a different community. Um, Lake Erie, which Ed described really well as being a, a power, you know, now a walleye and perch 
fishery, world-renowned. World it didn't used to be that way. It used to be like a native Cisco. It was not nearly as productive as it used to be. So, so it's hard to say how productive it really was, but clearly we got way more productive in the 80s. And if we think of like the 80s as being sort of the normal for Lake Michigan, we're sorely mistaken, right? It was much less and supported a very different fish community. Yeah, just, just to follow up on Bo's comment, it, the, the only way to estimate, um, relatively speaking, how much nutrients were going in the lakes is by looking at changes in land use over time. So, so people talk about pre-settlement conditions before Europeans come into the Great Lakes, and then they look at, you know, there are records of what people were doing and where they lived, and so you can back out really crudely uh, if the nutrients are coming down the rivers into the lakes, what the nutrient load possibly could have been on a relative basis, but it's true, we have no measurements. So this is more a comment than a uh, question. Um, I think it showed in one of your uh, slides up there, um, and there was a reference to Illinois being a Great Lakes state uh, a little bit ago. In actuality, I think 99% of Illinois is actually in the Mississippi uh, Valley, M Mississippi uh, watershed. Uh, Wisconsin is probably 80 or so percent in the um, Mississippi watershed. Ill Indiana and uh, Ohio are probably 80, 90% in the Mississippi watershed, whereas Michigan is, I think, 100% in the Great Lakes watershed. So the interest is going to be much higher here in Michigan than in any other state, because they are more in the Mississippi watershed than we are. Yeah, you're ab absolutely right. But if you um, look at where um, people are going fishing, the fishing pressure for salmon is real. The salmon actually start off in the Michigan side of the lake. And then in the summertime, they move over to the Wisconsin and Illinois side of the lake. And the, the harvest of fish is quite high over there. So they're heavily invested in what happens in Lake Michigan, even though you're absolutely right, most of their um, land is out of the Great Lakes drainage. Okay, I had a couple of questions over here. I think uh, you touched on it briefly. I didn't anticipate you doing it with waste management and uh, in terms of the growth of the populations upstream and tributaries that feed the river, um, how much of that development, or where could we find information about where that development has impacted and how would it be defined? I mean, I'm looking from a wastewater management and population growth. So, so actually, um, I'm working with a group of folks at Purdue University and Michigan State University, and several who used to be working from University of Michigan on a project to look at the effects of land use 
on the um, health of the nearshore waters and habitats and fish communities. It's called tippingpointplanner.org. It's a website you can go to, and you can actually, um, you can get on yourself, um, but you can also get guidance from people who work on this project and find out, okay, in Lake Michigan, where are the hot spots for nutrients coming from in the sub-watershed basis? And then also, what if you or you're a community um, in that area, you wanted to do something about that, reduce your footprint on the Great Lakes, what would you do? You know, what makes sense given, you know, your community, your community desires? And it's, it's basically a land use planning decision support tool to recognizing that land use effects on the Great Lakes are tremendous in some areas and then, you know, some areas were lower in nutrients that we probably want to be for fish. So I can follow up with you and give you that address afterward. Yeah. I would just add real quickly, the most, the biggest source of phosphorus is from agriculture land use, right? So when we create new developments or increase, you know, convert, I mean, in some ways converting agricultural to suburban, that might, in fact, reduce phosphorus input because of the agricultural contribution, the fertilizer input. And so communities like Ann Arbor that have instituted like a phosphate-free fertilizer application, those make an impact. It's, you know, so thinking about what the local community's regulations are about phosphorus as a fertilizer or to the extent that the agricultural community thinks about phosphorus inputs in connection to the downstream has a really, really big impact because it's the agricultural inputs that are the biggest loaders to uh, phosphorus in the lake, so. Um, I think that for the COP model, you said that you tracked it for 100 years, um, but in if you looked at the other kind of the changes in the ecosystem, it was happening, changes were happening like every 20 or 30 years, and so like I don't know what the triggers for those were, but did you account for similar triggers in the COP model when you tracked it for 100 years? Yeah, so that, uh, so when we are evaluating things, usually we assume the ecosystem reached a steady state or equilibrium so that uh, everything holds constant and then, and then we see everything reached a steady state. So usually in simulation, it takes 10 to 20 years to reach that state so that we can report, you know what that yeah, you look confused, so I'm trying to, yeah. So, yeah, so that's why, and then in some worst case scenario, it really takes really long to reach that state. So in order to have all of our simulation scenarios to reach a state, state so we choose, we choose 100 years, but most of the time it's five to 15 years you can reach that state. So, yeah, it's a short answer. That's a really good question, and in reality, there, things are changing all the time. You're absolutely right. And we're, it's so, uh, trying to get a good description of the food web anyway is so hard, and then calibrating it to based on what's happened in the past when things are happening all at once. 
we tried to do a good job with that, but we honestly we have no idea what will happen in the future other than just asking the question, let's just put carp into the ecosystem and just control for that, see what happens. And then we can add on more nutrients, less nutrients, see what happens. But really this is just a, a it's called a swag, a scientific wild ass guess. And, um, and we get paid to do it, it's amazing. I wondered if climate change factored into your modeling at all. Uh, give, well, Peter can answer your question. He's done that exercise. Peter. Um, well, for a different type of model than what uh, Ed was describing, we have factored in uh, scenarios of climate change, which we've used based off of previous years that were um, kind of unseasonably warm. So in 1997 and 1998, those were La Nina and El Nino years. Um, the 98 year was particularly warm in the winter and spring period. And so we use that as a kind of a basis for understanding, well, what might the climate look like in 100 years? Because that's supposed to be re typically representative of uh, the trajectory of where climate change is taking us. So this is a different type of model than what uh, Ed was describing, where he was describing as a food web model talking about broader changes um, to other fish and other species in the system. The model that we've run this scenario on um, is it, it looks at how suitable the habitat in Lake Michigan is for big head and silver carp. And generally with a warmer climate, um, we, these fish do better. There's a longer duration of habitat available for these fishes. Um, and, and there's some other entering, interesting interactions, but the, the changes to the lake's physics and how the, the lake goes through these mixing and stratifying periods, and when it's mixed, in the spring and fall, there's nutrients that reach, that come from the bottom all the way to the top of the water column. And then in the summer, it, the, the warm water sits on top of the cold water and, and nutrients stop reaching that top part of the water column. But there's also, um, at that point, the, the mussels are, which are stuck on the bottom aren't able to reach the food in that top part of the water column, which the models are right now showing would be better for carp because they would be able to swim around without having to worry about competing with the mussels up there. So. All right. Uh, here, I'll give you this one. So I want to add one more point. So we actually, we have enough science to support Asian carp restoration in China. So in China, what happened, climate change actually resulted in drought. And the drought makes, makes Asian carp really hard to recruit. They need a flood so that uh, they can have this connection between main channel and the flood plain, and then they can, they can swim to the main channel of the river to, to spawn. And then, so what happened in Mississippi River in recent years, climate change actually resulted in flood. And uh, if you look at uh, some photos in last year's field work, you see a swarm of Asian carp juveniles. So that is really concerning. I think there's a word called uh, tripophobia. Yeah, if you see those photos, I think if you, if you don't have that, you developed into tripophobia. What's that? That's like a smooth. What's that? Oh, maybe, maybe that's a bad memory. <laughs> but, 
Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so if you see those photos, then that was uh, really, I think, in last uh, few years that. No, I don't know. Oh, anyway, so that's not important. Oh, there it goes. Um, so we ha we just have time for one more question. I'm I'm sorry to say. Um, and, and this gentleman, I think, is going to ask it for, uh, for us. But before he does, um, uh, the little blue slips on your tables are evaluations. Um, please fill out one of those. Please remember to come next month and see Dr. Rolf Peterson, who does the Isle Royal Wolf and Moose Studies. Uh, and will be here for a special event, as well as for our Science Cafe. And uh, he's agreed to come. And that cafe is sponsored by Sigma Xi. I want to thank our sponsors this evening uh, one more time. Um, uh, Kathleen and Spencer Maidlow, thank you so much for sponsoring this cafe. Um, and thank all of you, because your discussion makes these, uh, makes these events so much richer. Uh, and so with that, we'll ask one last question. Well, I hope it's a useful question. Uh, I, I want to ask about competition. Uh, I, I gather that at the moment we have a substantial blanket of mussels uh, feasting on plankton. And so now if you add carp, who wins the fight for the plankton and how do you know? Question. Uh, you got a mic right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you don't really know, but um, we've tried to run that scenario through this ecosystem model. First, putting in, um, let the carp come into Lake Michigan first before the mussels did, because we can do that in a model and see how the carp do. And then we, um, then we put the carp in after the mussels, which is likely what would happen. Um, and you know, if there are no mussels there, the carp are definitely gonna do better. And when you put them in together, like we've actually done in tonight, show the results of, generally the, we don't think the carp will do well in areas of Lake Michigan, except in the productive areas. And, and Peter, who's done the fine scale work of looking at how much they eat every day, the, the carp, um, how fast they swim, what is the temperature of the water at any point in the water column. He, he thinks that uh, the, the model, his models show that, yeah, they can survive to get to a productive place but they probably won't grow much if they stick out in the middle of the lake where there's not much food for them. So that's a case where the mussels are there first, sucking the food out of the water column, and then the carp come in. So that's a good question, and, and it's, it's reality, yeah. Well, thank you very much, and thank all of you. Please thank our speakers for doing a great job.